practice, so I'm going to be reading as much as I am speaking today. Uh, I consider starting with a joke or a lighthearted comment, but that's not the tone I want to set. Because uh, today I'll be talking about violence and aggression, and it's not funny. Uh, part of being a father is responsibility of protecting your children. Usually that means teaching and preparing them for the life that lies ahead. And right now it means teaching them how to navigate an increasingly non-Christian culture. And here in America, one part of that culture that is growing, but is still not addressed often in the church, is violence. Uh, it's, a common top, uh, it's not a common topic in scripture, but when it is there, it's, a, it's understood as given, not just possible. So it's a topic that needs to be addressed in the church. Today we're going to look at three different contexts for violence. Uh, personal, professional, and athletic. When Christians think about personal violence, they tend to focus on individual, family, or home defense. If you're involved in an intentional attack, or if you're easily drawn into situational violence, like a bar fight or a riot, uh, stop now. That's sin. Um, when it comes to personal defense, there's some debate over whether or not you're even allowed to fight back. The most common argument against it uh, is, comes from people that quote Matthew 5.39. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Simply put, this is not applicable to defense. The verb there, I actually checked, it's Greek. It's to backhand, not punch, not backfist, not elbow, backhand. That's an insult and sometimes a display of dominance, but it's not an attack. Jesus was not commanding pacifism for his followers. He was commanding them not to take vengeance. If you look at the surrounding verses, you can see that he's explaining how to peacefully deal with people that are committing minor abuses. If he wanted to command complete pacifism, he could have said something like this. If a man breaks into your house, beats you, rapes your wife, kills your wife, kills your children, you are not to raise a hand against him. Jesus did not say that, and he never will. So he did not command complete pacifism. We're not only allowed to defend ourselves, we're expected to. Jesus addresses this in Luke chapter 22, 35, and 36, when he said to them, when I sent you out without money, without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has the money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag, and whoever has no sword is to sell his cloak and buy one. Jesus made sure his disciples were prepared, and in that second time, yeah, I lost it. Uh, he did specifically tell them to buy a sword. They understood, and they responded by saying, we have swords already. Robbers were common then as they are now, and an unarmed traveler would be at their mercy. Jesus knew this, as did the disciples. A little bit later in the chapter, Jesus was betrayed. Luke twenty-two forty-nine to 51 reads, When those who were around him saw what was going on, they said, Lord, should we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. The disciples asked him if they should use their swords, and one of them did. Jesus knew that this was the betrayal that would lead to his execution, so of course he told them not to fight. Then he healed the man who had lost an ear. So Jesus knew exactly what was supposed to happen here. But the point that is often missed in this passage is that the disciples were armed as a matter of habit. Jesus knew it, and he didn't tell them that it was wrong. They were expected to be able to defend themselves. That expectation has not changed. For those of us with families, the responsibility to protect them has also not changed. We must be willing and able to defend ourselves. 
But just as importantly, we must do it in a manner that is consistent with his teachings. The first and most obvious teaching is not to seek vengeance. That belongs to God, and he's very clear about that multiple times. If you read chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, 32, 44 through 43, or Romans 12, 17 through 21, as well as Matthew 5, which I referenced earlier, you will see that. And I suggest reading all of Deuteronomy 32. You'll see that God takes vengeance very seriously. So what then are we supposed to do when threatened with violence? There's actually a simple answer to that. Stop the threat. That may mean running, hiding, or talking your way out, but you don't need a sermon to tell you that. Sometimes, however, you will not have those options. And according to Scripture, you are allowed to defend yourself. Also, according to Scripture, you may not continue hurting your opponent after that threat has ended. That's vengeance. It is not your job to punish an attacker for his crime or to avenge yourself against him. God actually does care how you fight, and you will answer to him for how you treat people, even if they are your enemies or his enemies. So you're allowed to defend yourself. You're responsible for defending your family, and you're answerable to God for how you do it. You're not allowed to claim that God has commanded you to be a pacifist. Scripturally, he didn't. As far as how defense goes, you do not have to be a massive bodybuilder or a uh, bodybuilder or black belt. You don't have to have a concealed carry permit or join the NRA. The biggest part of self-defense is mental. Don't put your family at risk. <laughs> I can't tell you how many violent news stories began with someone being behind a convenience store at 2 in the morning or being somewhere unsafe while drunk. Be aware of threats and avoid them. And teach your children to do the same. You don't have to engage with people that are aggressive or abusive. And definitely don't try to fix other people. If someone's aggressively vehement about something but is also completely wrong, do not correct them. It's not your job, and it can lead to a fight. Jesus, Jesus was also clear that we're not to use violence to stand up for our rights. Again, referring to Matthew 5, resuming at verse 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. He's specifically telling us not to resist minor abuses with violence or vengeance. Then in Luke 22:52, uh, And Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a man inciting revolt? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Jesus verbally rebuked those that came to arrest him. He did not physically oppose them. Paul followed his example, and he only used legal arguments when he was uh, arrested repeatedly. Even though he was beaten by those in authority, he never attacked them in return. So we're not to go looking for trouble, we're not to put ourselves in unsafe positions, and we're not to use violence to respond to insults or oppression. We're not to use violence as a tool to get what we want. Standing up for your rights by attacking someone is not godly. But in the end, if all your attempts to avoid it have failed and you're forced into a violent situation, you must be capable. You must be prepared to protect your family mentally and physically. Just as you must intentionally learn to avoid threats, you must intentionally learn how to stop them. If you've never thrown a punch in your life, learn how. You're not allowed to be incapable. And if you're unsure about this, consider a simple comparison. As a parent, you must know how to provide for your children, how to feed them, wash them, clothe them, and teach them. 
you aren't allowed to skip any of those steps. But you must also know how to protect them. You can't outsource that part because you don't like it, because you think that job belongs to somebody else. And you can't ignore it, even though it is much less common than having to feed your child. So next, we come to professional violence. And by this, I mean violence as a part of your occupation. The most common forms of this are military and police, but it can also include other governmental agencies like the CIA or FBI. It can also include private security organizations. I'm not referring to organized crime because I shouldn't have to, and I'm not referring to combat sports because I'll address them later. Let's start with private security. First of all, I don't mean security guards, whether armed or unarmed. Uh, they're not called on to do violence, but they can, be, uh, they can be involved in situations where violence happens just as an ordinary citizen. If you're an armored car driver and someone attacks you, you can defend yourself, but you're not going to be in, involving yourself in violence as a part of your life or a part of your job. So at that point, those people are accountable to the God as if they were an ordinary citizen. Uh, real private security contractors are different. They're typically staffed with ex-military personnel and provide paramilitary services. They're literally paid to be violent. The operatives do not get to choose their clients, so this is obviously unacceptable. You will be called on to do violence as part of your job. After private security comes police. The general job duties of police are described uh, colloquially as to serve and protect. We all know that there's more to it than that. But under normal, normal circumstances, police officers operate in a defensive capacity. And when they're called on to be more aggressive, it is a targeted raid on known criminals. So violence is a constant threat in their lives, but not necessarily a daily part. And there are strict controls regarding use of force. So we've all seen or heard examples of police actions that went above or beyond, and they're held accountable to the law if they violate their job and to God if they violate scripture. So while there's no mention of an official law enforcement group in scripture, the idea of a protective police force seems sound. Each individual officer will be held accountable, however, uh, to the people and to God. And while this places more responsibility on a police officer than it does on an ordinary citizen, it does not prevent a Christian from becoming a cop. Next comes military and other federal agencies. The job duties vary wildly here, but I lump them all together because they have the same underlying problem. As soon as you sign up, you give up your right to choose. In all of these jobs, you do not have the ability to determine right and wrong. You cede it to your government. So if your commanding officer tells you to go somewhere and kill someone, you have to do it, and you won't always know why. There is no government currently on earth that can be trusted without authority. You are answerable to God for your actions, and if you let any man or man-made agency control you, it will lead to sin, because they only answer to themselves. Depending, uh, defending the nation of Israel under God's leadership is the only version of this I can think of that would be acceptable. But even so, soldiers can be ordered to do evil. We all know the story of David and Bathsheba. If you serve any modern government, you would be foolish to think that your king, president, general, or commander is more moral than King David was. You're going to have a problem, at best. So there is a bit of good news for people that want to serve their country but do not want to trade biblical morality for the government decree. 
Not all government or military positions are combat positions. You may be able to join a non-combat section of one of these agencies, such as doing cybersecurity for the NSA. If you do, you have to judge the appropriateness of your job duties according to scripture, just like any other job. But as far as violence goes, you'll more than likely be safe. So far, this seems a bit, a bit pessimistic, right? Maybe I'm just being cynical about gov big government. So if you want a way to look, uh, if you're looking for a way to judge the trustworthiness of a government, start here. The more control a government exerts on its populace, the less a Christian can be a part of it. For example, we can just look back to Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies, to see the effects of the Russian government when the Bolsheviks took over. They murdered over 100,000 of their own people to make sure they had full control. And you know the individuals doing the actual work didn't have the ability to disobey orders. Pol Pot was even worse. His regime killed more than a million people in Cambodia in order to uh, take control and then keep it. If you're following world events, modern China isn't much better. Um, they're currently considering annexing Taiwan. Uh, America isn't in the same position right now, but a government doesn't need to engage in genocide to be untrustworthy. And more importantly, the fact that all governments tend to be self-serving, self-expanding, and non-religious by nature indicates that they cannot be trusted with my obedience to God. Finally, we come to violence in athletics. Actually, let me go back a second. There are other possibilities for violence in occupation that are outside my knowledge and experience. If you come across one of those, then you must judge them the same way that you judge anything else. Are you ceding your ability to decide right and wrong? And if so, who are you ceding it to? Okay. Finally, we're going to come to violence in athletics. For most of us, this will be by far the hardest part to swallow. Most of us don't have violent occupations. But before we address athletics specifically, we need some context. In modern industrialized countries, the military is professional, so there's no need for a citizen army. In addition, what we think of as a modern police force is a relatively new concept. For most of the world's history, the citizens themselves were the first line of local defense and the last line of national defense. And the people that made up those defenses were men. They're bigger and stronger than women, and they have 20 times as much testosterone. Men are biologically inclined towards combat. The vast majority of them don't need to fight anymore. So this brings up a question for modern society. What do we do with all these testosterone-laden men? The answer in most countries is sport. Athletic events provide a safe and easy outlet, mostly, for all that extra testosterone, whether you're a competitor or a fan. Sports, in many ways, have taken the place of combat in the minds of modern man. And in fact, with the rise of the mixed martial arts, or MMA, there's been a major blur between the two in the public eye. Combat is now seen by many as a sport instead of as a way for someone to defend themselves and their families. I've even seen ads for MMA competitions where the announcer reminds the, the viewers that violence is a sport, not a way to solve problems. They literally took multiple combat forms that an uncountable number of people have used to defend themselves and said, no, this is not a fight, it's a competition. It's like basketball. Now, please enjoy watching these two men beat each other until both are bloody messes and one of them is unconscious. It's there in the commercials. 
To everyone that has been forced to fight to defend themselves, their families, their neighbors, or their countries, this concept is insulting and stupid. And unfortunately, the celebration of hurting each other is not limited to the so-called combat sports. More on that later. Now that we've been introduced to the general problem of replacing more with athletics, let's look at some specific sports. We'll start with the easiest group, which is the combat sports. This includes boxing and all MMA-style events. Basically, if you're allowed to punch, kick, or choke your opponent, it falls into this category. And I say this is the easiest group because it is sin. All of it, every time. The way to win your competition is to beat up your opponent. Read the entire Bible, and you will not find beat people up for money as a valid career option. You may note that the mob enforcers do have that job description. The most common argument for why combat sports are acceptable is this. My opponent agreed to it. Simply put, God does not care. The fact that someone else signed up does not give you the right to hurt them. If you take part in a combat sport, you are being paid to hurt someone. Their willingness is not relevant. You are accountable for your actions, not theirs. Therefore, combat sports are sinful. Even if you put a Bible verse on your boxing trunks, you are beating someone up for money, and that is not acceptable to God. You may also note that during biblical times, there is actually a parallel to what we refer to as combat sports. They were called gladiator fights. And if you recall world history, Christians did not participate willingly. In fact, many of them were forced into the arena and killed without mercy. That's not the kind of tradition we should be supporting or emulating. Questions at the end. The next sport I'm going to address is ice hockey. That's almost as easy. People go to hockey games to watch fights. The very concept that enforcers exist show that violence is embedded in the structure of the sport. In fact, it's the only sport that doesn't eject players for fighting during the game. According to recent ESPN data, fighting in the NHL was at an all-time low in 2019, with only about 20% of games involving a major fight. It's sad that 20% is an all-time low, but the downward trend does give me a little bit of hope. I'll have more hope if they start finding and ejecting players for fighting. There's no talk of that yet. Next, we come to the bulk of modern non-contact sports, baseball, basketball, football, golf. There's no real violence allowed in these arenas, but there are individuals that break the rules. I think most of us are old enough to remember Dennis Rodman's career with the Chicago Bulls. Uh, we shouldn't. Fortunately, players like that are the exception, not the rule. But the real danger in most of these sports isn't physical violence, it's the mindset. Remember when we started out for this section? Sports have taken the place of combat. And when you aren't allowed to punch your opponent, what do you do? For most people, the obvious answer is trash talk. It's pretty much everywhere in sports, at almost every level. If you go to a 10-year-old Little League game, there are plenty of players and parents who insist on insulting, demeaning, and harassing the other team, the coaches, and the umpires. While it's obviously not physical violence, it's still sin. Remember, if a particular behavior is sin off the field, it is sin on the field. God doesn't leave when you put on your uniform or when you sit down in the bleachers. Now we come to the hard one, at least here in America. Football is everywhere, and in many places, it's a way of life. Since it's a contact sport, it's easy to hurt somebody. If you think it's not a problem, ask yourself a simple question. 
What happens to the defensive players? They don't hit hard. Answer, they get cut. Football, more than any other non-combat sport, fosters a combat mentality. Players, coaches, and commentators frequently refer to it as a war zone. Players are taught from a young age to hit hard, intimidate their opponents, and be aggressive. And that brings us back again to where we started. Sports have taken the place of combat in the modern, modern mindset. Even if you play a position that doesn't require you to hit people, the mindset is still there. This is a fight, and your team needs to fight harder, hit harder, and never give up. If you don't fight, you don't make the team. If you think your linebacker is hitting too hard and might hurt your opponents, everyone on your team will disagree with you. And in many cases, you will have lost their trust and respect. Being nice to your opponents is not part of the game. So where does this leave us? Biblically, we're not allowed to hurt people for money, pleasure, or competition. We can't pretend it doesn't happen. We can't pretend it's not part of the game. As a church, we have been pretending exactly that. So then what do we do? The solution starts, as it should, with the parents. It is up to us to monitor and protect our children. It is also up to us to know where the dangers are. The dangers in the combat sports are obvious. You must hurt someone to win. That is sin. The danger in football is less obvious to some. You must intentionally develop a combat mentality and behave in an aggressive manner to win. That will lead to sin. Note that I do not say may lead to sin. Nobody with a benevolent or loving mindset wins a football game. To me, that makes football unacceptable. I know that some people will disagree. They will say that it is possible to follow God and play football. If you're one of those people, I have a homework assignment for you. Watch a football game. Count all the references to fighting, combat, or war. Count all the hits and injuries. Intentionally watch the players get up after a tackle. Take a close look at them when they're in each other's faces. Write down all the details. Then ask yourself, would God want you or your child to behave like that off the field? If not, they shouldn't do it on the field either. Remember, the athletic field is not a God-free zone. So while contact sports, and especially combat sports, promote anti-God behavior, the non-contact sports are still somewhat safe. I say somewhat safe. Because it's still up to the parents to monitor. A bad coach will teach bad behaviors. A bad league will reinforce bad behavior. When a child, a child is taught to be aggressive or hostile on the field when they're young, that behavior will continue when they are older, and it will spread to other aspects of their life. If they're taught that aggression and trash talk are acceptable on the field, they will very rationally think that that behavior is acceptable off the field. If you've ever wondered where men are trained to be aggressive, dominating, and verbally abusive, this is one of the main places. We cannot train them to behave one way on the field or in the bleachers and then expect that they'll be different when they're in their home. Finally, we must remember that sports are neither biblical nor anti-biblical. They are not inherently good or inherently evil. We must all intentionally realize they are part of this world's culture, not God's culture. And I say intentionally because most people accept sports passively without any thought. We need to think. And any attempt to force sports to fit into God's culture is wrong. We can only allow into our lives what's acceptable to God, and violence and aggression don't count. We cannot force something in just because we want it there, because we were raised with it, or because everyone else does it. So if you want a quick comparison, 
reading is not inherently biblical or anti-biblical. It depends entirely on what you are reading. That means I can't argue in favor of reading Penthouse Forum, even if my dad has been reading Penthouse since I was a kid. He hasn't, if you're wondering. But I bet a few people listening to this have fathers or grandfathers who have participated in or watched football, hockey, or boxing since they were young. That makes it traditional, not biblical. This actually went a lot shorter than I expected. So I know we've covered a lot, so brief summary. According to Scripture, we're allowed to defend ourselves, and we're expected to do so. We're not to join the military or any special intelligence or private security group, because doing so will force us to obey men instead of God. There's no country or armed organization that is scripturally trustworthy. Police work is still acceptable, but looking back through history, we can see that is not the case at all times in all countries. We may eventually have that problem in America if the government keeps increasing the level of control it can exert over its people. Next, we're not allowed to use violence to assert our rights. This includes threats, attacks, and riots. All such action is sin, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. We are not to engage in any athletic behavior that emphasizes physical violence, aggression, or trash talk. This will highly limit athletics in our lives, and we must do it anyway. Next, we must monitor what influences our children. There are good and bad coaches, good and bad leagues, and good and bad players. It is up to us to know them and judge appropriately. We cannot blindly follow someone, even if it's a coach that professes to follow God. We must always remember that there are no God-free zones. If an action is sin in one arena, it is sin in another. We must also remember that if we train people in one arena, like the athletic field, they will behave that way in other arenas, like their home. Finally, if you ever ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Remember that flipping tables and chasing people with a whip is a valid answer. In one specific context, he did that. Cheering as a 240-pound linebacker slams into a quarterback from behind, potentially crippling him? Not a valid answer. Cheering as a boxer lands a concussion-inducing knockout punch? Also not valid. Jesus never rejoiced in the pain or injury of others, and neither should we. Aggression and violence without biblical context is sin. Every time. Way shorter than I expected. Or I went too fast. Uh, I will take questions. Do you want to cut the recording before questions?